0: you're thinking negative thoughts, then those are the sort of motorways that you're creating in your brain where the water just flows most naturally. And you can interrupt them. You can completely rewire your thinking through very specific use of language and an attention
1: to your own thought patterns. I'm your host, Rob Cook, and this is Contenders Wanted. The show where we believe incredible success doesn't have to come at the expense of your family your faith or anything else that makes life worth living too many success stories nowadays celebrate people who either sacrifice these things for their own success or became successful before realizing the importance of them our mission is to show the world you can have both incredible success and the things that make your goals worth reaching for we know it's possible because we've seen it in our own lives and the lives of our guests So if you're ready to go from contender to champion, then join us where contenders are always wanted. How much do you think about your thoughts? Seems kind of like a funny question, don't you think, thinking about our thoughts? But in all reality, this is something people have encouraged me to do, at least, ever since I was a kid. I grew up in a very religious home where I was taught good Christian values. And part of that upbringing was learning to have clean, morally right thoughts. And some of my first experiences of being taught about the importance of having good thoughts were things like, watch your thoughts, they become your words. Watch your words, they become your actions. Watch your actions, they become your habits. Watch your habits, they become your character. Watch your character, it becomes your destiny. But my early training around paying attention to my thoughts really only focused on that moral cleanliness side of things. I didn't think about learning to observe and actively choose my own thoughts and how it could impact other areas of my life. Then in the last couple of years, I noticed that there were a lot of other personal development quote unquote experts talking about our programming or lotting the benefits of affirmations. And I realized that at the end of the day, all of these things that they were talking about really focused around the better control and use of our thoughts for our own benefits. And then one evening, all of these things that I've been hearing kind of all came to a head and came together. I was sitting on the edge of the bathtub in our bathroom as my wife and I were getting ready for bed one evening. We were talking about the financial freedom blueprint that I advertised for at the end of the last couple of shows. At the time, it was just in its infancy stage. I had done some work, kind of pulled some things together, but I found myself kind of running up against this mental block for some reason. And for some reason, I just couldn't find the motivation or the desire or whatever you want to call it to work on it. And I couldn't figure out why. Normally, this is just not a problem for me. So I sat there and my wife began asking me questions and kind of playing mini therapist on me for a few minutes. And what came out was that I was afraid. I was afraid of making something and having no one respond to it. I was afraid that others would view me as a phony, as a fake. And it was sitting there that I realized that every time that I'd start to work on that project, my thoughts would start to create scenarios where I'd be embarrassed or maybe no one would ever respond to my offer or someone would find out that I am not as successful as it may appear on the outside. Spoiler alert, hate to brag it to you guys, but for those of you who don't know me personally, I'm not a super successful guy. I'm trying to figure it out myself and created the show to help myself and others like me find success. So, shout out to those who have messaged me about the financial freedom blueprint. Thank you for not making those fears become a reality. Anyways, to wrap up the story, I decided that night to take action and force myself through my fears and and got the financial freedom blueprint ready for the next episode. But I might never have gotten it out there if I hadn't seen the impact of my own thoughts. And then, Taking the action to get through them. They were literally and metaphorically holding me back. Now, I tell you all of this not to make you think that I've overcome all of my fears or that I've mastered my thoughts because that's definitely not the case. But instead, I tell you this to illustrate that our minds are powerful things. And sometimes the thoughts that are driving us and maybe even holding us back, we might not even recognize. But it takes purposeful reflection and sometimes the help of someone like a loving spouse to really begin to see ourselves and our thoughts more clearly. And our guest today has done that work. And he told me after recording this episode that he feels like the lessons he shared in this episode about his journey to become more mindful and to fight back his own black dog, to borrow that phrase used in depression circles are some of the most important lessons that he could share with us. Sir Stephen Wilkinson is an Englishman living in Ireland. He's the founder and managing director of Good and Prosper LTD. He has spent all of his adult life in the finance and investment worlds, focusing primarily on investing and advising small and medium-sized private businesses. He has a myriad of experiences, is incredibly well-read, he's a fascinating individual. And on the episode today, we talk about how Stephen fell in love with finance, how he discovered that numbers can become a language that tells stories. And then we transition to talking about the impact of Sir Stephen Wilkinson's first mentor on his career trajectory and how we can all find our own masters of our crafts. Then Sir Wilkinson opens up and shares with us his struggles with depression and how learning to control his thoughts... Enabled him to beat back his own black dog. Oh, and by the way, yes, he is Sir Stephen Wilkinson. He is a knight, but we honestly didn't even have a chance to jump into that story. So I'm hoping we're going to get a second episode with him and we can dive into that as well. But lastly, we end the discussion talking about the benefits of mental models and on personal development and subsequent success and so many good things. Honestly, I love the episode. I really enjoyed my conversation with Sir Stephen Wilkinson, and I hope that you do, you enjoy it as well. For Sir Stephen Wilkinson's full bio, check out our show notes on your podcast player and on our website at contenderswanted.com. And with that, let's dive right in. Sir Stephen Wilkinson, welcome to the show. Thank you. I uh, very much appreciate you making the time. And I know we had some back and forth with schedule mix ups and different things. So thank you so much. I I am very much looking forward to this interview. I. Honestly, as I did research in preparation for this show, I just became more and more fascinated with your thoughts, your thought process, your story, all sorts of things. So I think this is going to be an awesome episode for listeners. But why don't you take a moment here at the onset and tell listeners a little bit about yourself? Who are you, and what is it that you do? Um, thank you, Rob, for
0: having me on the on the Contenders Wanted show. I'm- Really been looking forward to our conversation. I am an Englishman living in Ireland. I spent most of my adult life working in Germany. I went over in 1987 as a rookie investment banker um, working for Merrill Lynch. Um, they opened their, their Munich office. And I think they took me because. I could speak German reasonably well I could tie a tie and had a pair of hands and was reasonably articulate not for any innate ability or financial acumen I'd studied um literature um high medieval
1: German literature if I yeah, remember correctly yeah that quickly, was right? that
0: was a significant part of the course at uh, Durham University in the early 80s um and I had spent a year my very first university year in in Germany, studying economics. And I got homesick and went back home again and went to Durham after that. And I, the only reason I went into finance was because I got married very early. Um, and my wife asked a very reasonable question of how I was thinking of supporting her <laughs> and the family. Um, and I thought, I better get a job that that pays the rent and will give me some sort of skill set over and above my love and knowledge of literature. So banking seemed like a good idea, or, well, the finance seemed like a good idea, Mm -hmm. because at least I thought it would be useful to learn the basics. And um, I chose Merrill Lynch because they had a, they were offering, had a really good training program. Their trainee program was, was one of the best at that stage. Um, and they were looking for people in their Munich office. And so I applied and got it in August of 1987, um, about three months before the October crash. And I remember sitting, you know, I, w- I wasn't in a place where I could do any harm because I didn't have any clients, but then I was still sort of in my training period. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do remember that that one or those one or two days or that particular afternoon sitting in the office and watching panic break out. Just watching people for the first time in that environment it was fascinating.
1: Absolutely. Well, that fascinating. was wasn't that the drop where we dropped like twenty-four percent within twenty-eight. Yeah, twenty-eight percent in just a matter of a couple of days. A couple of hours. Yeah.
0: It just it was Thursday and it just wiped. It was absolutely fascinating. And of course, you know, in the immediate aftermath, the, all the speculation was around, this is the beginning of a new depression, and we just have the Reagan boom. And if you remember the 1970s beforehand, Volker had sort of crushed inflation, which was running at 15 16%, and he put interest rates up to 20%, and literally under the screams of both the political establishment and the economy, he forced the inflation genie back in its bottle. hmm and when he'd sort of done that, the Reagan boom started in 1982. Um, I remember James Baker was the uh, uh, was his secretary of um, Secretary of state. And there was the plaza record in 1985 and sort of international coordination around the dollar and the dollar's renewed strength. And America was on a roll, absolutely on a roll. And, and 1986 was the opening of the City of London. The big, what was called Big Bang, and the Americans just came in and took over London. Um, simple as that. They, you know, they they came in with much more capital than the British banks and the British establishment had ever managed to accumulate, and just took them over. You know, Morgan Stanley, Merrill, Goldman, um, J.P. Morgan, all the big names, Lehman. They were all in London buying up brokerages and and stock jobbers and sort of all the Sort of various different houses, um, and the you know the markets were on a roll. And in the summer of nineteen eighty-seven, when the in October nineteen eighty-seven, that came to a grinding halt, um, and everybody thought it was over. You know, everybody was convinced that was the end of the big cycle, and there were a few names nobody's ever heard of them today. Bob Prechter and his Elliott Wave Theory. Who um, was sort of busy telling everybody in the summer that he was, you know, selling everything, his home, his—he was going to live in a cave off baked beans for the rest of his life because <laughs> sitting on his pile of gold because the big depression was coming, and that was very much the sort of environment that we were yeah, in. Atmosphere. Alan Goldspan, uh, Greenspan had just taken over at the Fed in eighty-six, I think, 85, 86. Mm-hmm. and he then set the tone for. The next thirty years, you know, dropping interest rates, flooding the markets with
1: liquidity, liquidity and I think yeah. that's
0: and that's the environment that I entered the market into and grew up in. So,
1: and well, I very been interesting in, times then to join
0: the world. Yeah, it was finance. fascinating. It was fascinating, and 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 I've always you know my interest in finance was twofold. Number one, I really did want to learn the language of. Finance and business in order to be able to understand it, because I felt that that was probably going to be useful whatever I did, particularly as my you know, my my focus of study previously had been literature and not particularly practical um, but I found interestingly enough, and this was this has sort of colored my view of the business world and finance ever since I found that finance told a very interesting story in and of itself, and that if you combined, if you understood sort of how money worked in the system, how interest rates, and the economy worked, and what people, how people thought about it, and the cycles, and all the things that you know make up the economy, in the macro sense, and and how businesses work from a financial perspective on the the micro sense, then you get to see the story of civilization and the story of our culture playing out from a different perspective. And one of the things I realized very quickly was that um, all of literature, whichever period you go to is always impacted by the, the, the economic environment that it's in. So my, one of my favorite periods is the, is the literature of the mid to late 19th century America. That would be the transcendentalists, Emerson and, Thoreau and Walt uh, Whitman and and the the like and Emily Dickinson at the far end and in England it would be the Dickenses and the um, Henry Jameses and the Thomas Hardys and the um, and the Trollops of sort of mid to late Victorian period who were all writing about you know all their dramas and stories are set in times of great social change which from an economic perspective was explainable through you know the huge changes that were going on in the economy and the sort of industrialization and the changes in wealth structures because it was it was no longer just the aristocrats and land that was sort of driving prosperity it was technology and finance and trade and and these things on steroids and so the literature was was trying to make sense of this huge period of change
1: mm-hmm.
0: which when you read the literature without an economic understanding you're just reading the story if you read the literature with an understanding of, econo- of the economic background in which it's happening you get a much deeper understanding of how economics affects and is a integral part of social change and that is true Right up to today, and will always be true. Literature I, and the stories are always set in in an economic, you know in an economy somewhere because that's what we do. You know it's an yeah. integral part of it,
1: so well, it's the backdrop to all the stories. It's part of what gives life to them is uh, I think if you understand those other pieces, it really provides meaning and depth to to the stories, in yeah, fact, absolutely. it's funny. Just yesterday, I was listening to another podcast, or I listened to a gentleman by the name of uh, uh, Dominic Fisbee, I think is yeah, his name. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, yeah. Dominic's whole perspective is that everything can be understood through the lens of taxes, which is just another way of saying this as well, right? It's just a more nuanced, maybe focused version, but similar. Um, you know, the world, everyone says the world runs on money, right? Or money makes the world go round. But uh, we often don't think about it in terms of the context of. The arts right would that be literature or yeah any absolutely,
0: other and our interpretation of, of of the characters in fiction mm-hmm. is very much clouded by the way in which sort of liberal arts specialists are trained in economics, which is not at all, you know, if they are, they tend to be more socialist and they tend to be more sort of left wing and and particularly nowadays, they're sort of right off the scale, most of them. Um, and they will look at, you know, something like a Christmas tale, and they will tell you stories about what it means and how awful Scrooge was and how oppressed Tiny Tim was, and without any understanding of the of the nuance of the economic environment in which that was happening. Or you, know, you look at the great the great novels from um, and the Depression era, the interpretation is always the sort of democratic FDR. Without the New Deal, we would all be, you know, we'd all be still living in caves or the America will be one giant Dust bowl. And there's very little nuanced economic analysis of whether that's actually true or not. Yeah. Um, and that's really fascinating. I won't bore you with it, but there is a, no, no fascinating. Actually. It's fascinating it's to point. take a different perspective of economics into what's actually happening with the characters that are being portrayed. Yeah, actually, as, as you were the speaking... Christmas, the Christmas Carol is a really, really good um, example of that.
1: Yeah, as, as you were talking, I was thinking of The Grapes of Wrath and of Mice of Men by uh, John Steinbeck here. Absolutely. You know, that's the US Classics. version of the exact same thing. Yeah, yeah uh, it's classic. Uh, Great, great points. And honestly, if we had time to dive down that rabbit hole, I'd love to hear your thoughts on just picking apart *Christmas Story* uh, and *Scrooge* and that whole si- situation. Um, but I don't want us to to go too far off of kind of uh, kind of where we're, where we're going here, because all of this is in the context of finance as a language that provides understanding and context for the world around us. Uh, but you share that you know your background was in literature, and you didn't initially have this perspective of finance. Um I've heard you share that you had actually a you had an event happen in your professional life that really opened your eyes to this fact that finance oh, yeah, and was, numbers are to... a language. Would you mind yeah, sharing that to... experience? No absolutely. It was, so I moved jobs um, as
0: quickly as I could from um, from Merrill cuz I just wasn't particularly happy there. It wasn't it's not very friendly it wasn't. It's not my business model, um, and I wanted to go somewhere where I and I needed. I recognised that if I wanted to continue on in that profession. I really needed a a master to teach me, rather than learning at the expense of my clients, which is mm-hmm. <laughs> most baby bankers and brokers tend to make their you know, their <laughs> school of um, experience is paid for by their clients. And I didn't want that. And um, so I, I was lucky to be hired by an outstanding man who was one of the sharpest, most analytical minds that I've ever come across. And he was a really pragmatic, unbelievably um, intelligent, disciplined partner in a wealth management company who taught me to think, and he taught me about Numbers. He was he was a very hard taskmaster. I, I picked him because I knew he would either teach me everything I needed to know or break me. <laughs> 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 and and the day he came closest to breaking me, I remember it clearly. It was at the end of the sort. Of, I'd been there for about three or four months. And He'd asked me to prepare an analysis of some fund that we were thinking of investing in, and and, and I sort of jotted it down on a bit of paper. And presented it to him, and sort of sent it over. I think it was handwritten at the time, and um, and I got a summons to stay behind in the evening and come and see him at six thirty or seven or whatever. And I knew that didn't
1: sound,
0: <laughs> didn't sound like like that was going to be for fun. We were going to have a glass mm-hmm. of whiskey, like Boston uh, Boston legal, at the end of our day. Didn't think that was going to be me and. Danny, Danny, up on the up on the balcony, sipping a I think everyone's been in those stars. types of situations, right? <laughs> no. Anyway, I, I came in and he sort of dangled this bit of paper in front of me, and he just proceeded to tear strips off me. How he'd never seen anything quite so so badly presented, so unbelievably laxadaisical, so 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 ignorant of the very basics of numeric presentation. And I just remember thinking, I, f- I felt you know, about three years old again, as if I was about to be whipped. I'm sure. And you know, when you're when you're in those sort of situations, and you're having you're really having the skin flayed off you. I just remember thinking, I'm going to lose this job, and I've got to go home tonight, and I've got to sort of report back and say, I've got to look for a new job because by the end of the month I'll be gone. And then. He sort of stopped his tirade, and basically what he was saying was that the way that I was writing the numbers down and explaining my thinking was just really bad grammar, it was really bad numbers grammar and he and he sort of took my piece of paper, took a fresh piece of paper, said, "This is how you do it, and then wrote the numbers down properly in a column with the decimal points underneath each other and <laughs> And while he was doing that, I realized he wouldn't be doing that if he was going to find me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He wouldn't be teaching me how to do it properly. I just can't believe that he would. No, he won't be. I'm okay. And it was in that second that I realized that numbers are a language. They they have their own grammar. They have their own rules. They have their their own syntax. And that he was doing exactly what I would be doing if somebody came with that sort of approach to number to, to words, and it was mm-hmm. writing you know bad syntax with rubbish grammar and and I suddenly had this sort of epiphany that if it 's a language, then I can learn it because i 'm quite good at languages i can I can learn that I can mm-hmm. learn how to interact with numbers on a, at a linguistic level, and it was also then that I realized that actually what he was doing he was telling me. How to arrange numbers and facts so that they tell a story. That was what
1: he was. That's doing. right he up your alley. He didn't say
0: that in as many words, but I recognized immediately that that's what he was doing. It completely changed my entire relationship with the numerate, um, and and I, I'm eternally grateful to him. There's not a day that goes by that I don't, when I'm writing down numbers, when I don't have a some little flashback and think. I, The way that I think about numbers, the way that I approach them, the way that I interact with them, I can trace back to the, the, the years that I spent with him, and particularly that first year when he was just uh, kicking me all over the shop.
1: I, I love that story for a couple of different reasons. Um, number one, in part because I am a CPA by background. And I had been one of those that always enjoyed math and different things. But when I found accounting and I found financial numbers beyond just mathematical problems, that was the thing that I fell in love with. I loved the fact that I could look at a set of financial statements and it just told a story that I could see over time what had happened to a company and how they had progressed, you know, improving or, or you know, yeah going backwards potentially um, that was fascinating to me. It was like this whole world opened up to me that I didn't even know existed before, so I appreciate that story quite a bit because i it it aligns a lot with my own journey, my own finance journey as well but there's uh, another part what,
0: what sorry, else please. what you said there was a few things what other aspects
1: yeah <laughs> I say the, the other aspect that I appreciated is that you said that you you purposely worked with this gentleman because he was a master of his craft. Yep. And I have tried to be very purposeful in my career journey and where I work and why I do the things that I do. Um, But that's very hard to do uh, just because you don't know what you don't know, especially when you're newer, younger in your career, trying to get off on the right foot. Um, I'm curious, how did you know? That this gentleman was a master at his craft, or how did well, you Well, because we knew him? each
0: other, we we knew each other privately, and um, he he and I had spent the previous two years since I got to know him um, talking about the challenges that he was facing when he set up the partnership. He left a larger private company to set up with a partner in his own wealth management business. And and because we were friends, his wife and my wife were friends and and he and I became friends and he was sort of, and he's probably went 15 to 20 years older than I am. So it was a sort of half to three quarters of a generation. He was probably, I'm going to say 40 when I was 25, something Mm -hmm. like that. Um, 40 when he started his business and I came relatively shortly after he set up his business because I knew I knew what he was looking for and because of the way that we'd been talking over the previous years that he'd been telling me about you know the challenges and and what he was looking for and how he approached the world I found that very attractive and I just knew he knew more than almost anybody else that I'd come across and I loved the way that he thought all I had to do was persuade him to take me on. And that was a, I had to be tricky to do that.
1: Yeah. As you're talking in my head, I'm ticking off like little things for listeners. If you're trying to find a master, like you mentioned, you loved the way that he thought, right? Think, recognizing someone's thought process, I think is a very clear indication of where they're at and kind of maybe where they're going. I mean, that's one of the things that personally, as I've had my conversations with you, has attracted me to you, was listening to your thought processes as you're explaining various topics and things that we've discussed together. It's, it's fascinating. Um, so that, that's I think that's a really good key point right there, is that when you're looking for a master, when you're looking for people to learn from, find people who have good thought processes, who see the world at a different level than most of the other people around you. Um, I think
0: that, is there yeah, any. Absolutely. And the other thing that I, that I recognize, although I, I would be the first to admit that my, the quality of my self-reflection at the age of 25 was sort of on a scale of 10 round about two.
1: Um, I think for most 25 year olds, that'd be the case. I,
0: but I, I instinctively I've instinctively realized that he had a, an inner core of discipline that i really wanted to learn from i Mm. wanted to have that discipline that he exuded i didn't quite know how he's going to do that but i have this feeling that he would sort of beat me into shape it was a little bit like joining the marines i you know i was if you join the marines and you're a bit overweight and you're not very sporty you just know that during boot camp they're going to just kick the shit out. Of you You just know it, <laughs> but but you also have to have this understanding that that is going to be good for me. I yeah. need that, yeah, and
1: I needed that. So when you say you had I, this I internal know. discipline, is it is it was it a, a moral discipline? Was this a a professional, right, a professional discipline? Dis- okay. Professional okay. discipline. Okay, I'm just kind of curious. It
0: was just a. It was just a. I'm going to say a, a ruthlessness in about him mm. that I admired. And I wanted to learn and have that, some of that, I wanted him to teach me to be like that too. Not entirely, as you get to know your master, you think, okay, there are things I do differently, but there were some core elements that I found exceedingly um, attractive for my own journey, even though I had no idea where I was going, but I, I just knew that I need that.
1: Yeah. I I think it's natural, I I would say, when you meet a master to recognize, I need some of that. Ooh, I I, got to figure out a way to get a a part of that. Uh, And I think in our day and age, it's so much easier to gain access to masters. If you think of our day of social media and courses and books and lectures and events and all sorts of different things, I think it's easier to come in contact with them to some extent. Uh, Would you agree with that? Or do you think it's more of this? Because your 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 situation was much more personal. It sounds like you had a very personal relationship for a couple of years with this individual before you started working with them. Yeah. For someone in our day and age, and who maybe maybe they're in a career and they realize I need to find a master. Um, I, think I think everybody does.
0: Um, I think everybody does. I you know the, the one piece of advice I would give to anybody at the beginning of their career is be really really mindful, as mindful as you can be about the first, the choice of your first boss and, and find someone who, who you look up to whose ethics and values are, are aligned with your aspirational ones who has a reputation for developing the potential of the people that he or she is responsible for and... Where you know that you'll be given responsibility and encouragement uh, way beyond your the normal career path, because if there's one thing that accelerates your career, it's having that outstanding first boss. Yeah, because your entire mindset paradigm around what business is what leadership is what business culture is about what your you know what what your potential is will be framed by that initial experience you just can't help it you know, you're it's so it's such a sensitive time because your synapses and your you know, your, your your ability to to absorb the world And to figure out how it works are conditioned by that first environment and if you have a great environment and you learn to step into your own potential because you've got somebody there who not only sees it but wants you to stretch it and is prepared to give you the room and the responsibility to do it you know whilst keeping whilst having your back and teaching you something then that is just an accelerant. that's like the rocket fuel, yeah um, because your self-confidence and your understanding is shaped to such a degree that you don't you know if you move if and when you move on to the next job, which you of course will do, you already have this innate self-confidence that you are capable of being an agent of change,
1: you know as you're talking, i I couldn't help but think that this, in some ways is perhaps contrary to a lot of the ways in which we're taught to view our career. I mean, I think we're all taught, oh yeah, you need to get a good job out of school if you go the traditional educational route. Um, but a good job does not mean a good boss, right? Usually I think for most people that translates into, you know, the best pay that I can get and a good location with good upward mobility and, you know, but most people don't think in terms of, Hey, This is the first step too many in my career, the who I am being mentored by and tutored by in those early stages will impact me years from now. I, therefore, the best job for me might not be the most at the biggest firm or at the flashiest place or with the highest salary, but it'll be where I get the best initial training in my field with the best group of people. Um, It's just, I think it's a reframe. It's. Sim, you're, you're, we're all looking for the same thing, right? We want to be successful. We want to have some measure of, of, of impact in our lives, and our careers. But the inputs to those impacts um, and the, the framework with which we view them and try to make those decisions, I think, can highly tr- uh, impact our, our trajectory long-term. And I think this is a great reframe of, of that situation. And
0: you know, that's I, people say, well, I don't really have the choice. And I think you do have the choice. Oh yeah that, that that first job you definitely have you you have always got the choice you always have the choice and and you, you know you it, it's a question of doing a little bit more diligence and asking before you accept the job to make a really specific point of, of narrowing down the candidates to people that you genuinely want to work for yeah and i think you're, also if you're at a university you've got you know, loads. You should have lots of friends and alums in the in the grad in the year that graduates ahead of you, so you can ring them um, mm-hmm. and say, you know, if, are you working for anybody spectacular? And a good point. People will come back with answers, and it's much better to go and work for somebody superb in a business that you really don't know anything about. You know, instead of one of the big names, where you're going to get I don't know, anybody. And then move, having experienced a year or two of of um, mentoring by somebody outstanding. Yeah. So I'd, I would always go for the outstanding boss, irrespective of where they were, and even if that sort of isn't an area or a job that or a, a company that you had ever thought of before, that I would do that before going to one of the names because it's just. It would make a make such a difference to your trajectory and to your the quality of your life.
1: I would second that, and I can second that because I chose in my own personal career chose to go with a big name first, um, and I saw the impact of bad leadership. Not that any of the people that were, you know, my mentors or my uh, more senior persons i was reporting to in my first job that they were bad people they're all great people and i i like them as people for sure but as as leaders as bosses they were you know pretty bad <laughs> frankly speaking well
0: then they say that people come for the job and leave for the management
1: yeah it's true and i worked at a large multinational accounting firm it was a, it was just a factory you know they churned people in and out all the time and you know there was really no management um so yeah it was I can add my witness that that is incredibly important. Think longer term, think more about the yield off of, you know, those experiences the first couple of years even if it's difficult like this one with your your master, you know you said he whipped you constantly for that first year or so, but clearly What's what the name
0: of what was the name of the sergeant, the drill sergeant in um, an officer and a gentleman with Richard Gear? Oh, it's been so long. And what was since Richard Gere's character called?
1: I can't remember. I want to look it up, but I can't remember. But I, I know what you're referring to. Okay, um, well. that's but, what you need. Uh, yeah, no, I agree. Sometimes our our world has become quite soft, in my opinion, in lots of ways. And I think more often than not, we shy away from the little bit more tougher love that drill sergeant who doesn't accept anything but greatness from us. And therefore we don't get pushed and don't see what can become of ourselves if we don't have that. So yeah, great, great points. Sir Stephen Wilkinson, we we've <laughs> yeah. been kind of circling around this idea of being thoughtful. Um, and its impact on an early career. I mean it's clearly it has an impact later in life as we're making important decisions and making career changes or moving forward in our families and various things. How have you tried to develop this ability to be more thoughtful and purposeful and reflective or however you want to describe it? Is this something that's been come very natural to you or is this something that you've had to work on developing and how, if so, it sounds like, yes. How did you work on that? Um, I
0: I've never had an issue with intelligence. Okay, so I've I've always been quite proud of my brain and my ability to think holistically, to absorb information, to read widely and I I've, I've never had seen that as an issue. However, i um i I wasn't always happy, and I found myself often at the mercy of my own thought patterns, which could be quite self-destructive. Um, and because I wanted to sort of understand everything rationally. I could never really understand, I never really understood what was happening. And I was I had a diagnosis that I was sort of not clinically, but that I suffered from depression. Because I would get really sort of down moods and mm-hmm. regularly. And I never I didn't have a name for it. I didn't know what it was. And thankfully, I I've always been drawn to 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 long distance walking and to trail walking. And I live in the most spectacular walking country, Ireland. And I would just, when I was in Germany, I would just jump on my bike or I would grab the dog and I would walk and walk for hours and hours and hours until I felt better. And I would just go. And my wife would say, just go, out, go. She could see the black dog coming and say, just get in the car, go. Whatever Mm -hmm. you're doing today, cancel it, just go. And Um, What I didn't realize was that if you don't control your thoughts, and it has nothing to do with intelligence, if you don't control your thoughts and you have something in your psychological makeup that is sort of questioning your own worth or validity or, or sense of, who you are and what you're doing and the purpose that you have if you're so constantly questioning that or feeling feeling the weight of mistakes that you've made or judging yourself very critically, which I all of those things I did, um, but possibly still do, but I certainly was but I wasn't aware of how I was processing my emotional and psychological state and how that was affecting me. I didn't understand when people said you have to control your thoughts Mm -hmm. i didn't know what they meant i i thought that that state of emotional response that it was given that you know if i'm feeling down i'm feeling down
1: yeah
0: and it was only again we've talked about how important our wives are my my wife has been unbelievably valuable to me in that reflection because she knew she had to appeal to my intelligence to get me to understand stuff and then, if you like, process it emotionally. And the thing that that I learned from her was my language. She said, if you don't watch your language, you can describe something to me, you can describe it in in, in vivid terms that are emotionally laden with sort of catastrophe and disaster and awful and, and use your very rich vocabulary to amplify the negative. But if you do that, then you are creating an internal resonance and, and strengthening the thought patterns that then lead to that sense of Mm. despair, blackness, whatever you want to call it, depression. And, I have realized that the most important thing you can do for your mental health is to understand, understand, capture, and then reverse through very specific use of language and thinking those negative thought patterns that we're probably all subject to. And the fascinating thing for me has been that using the knowledge of, of language, being very mindful of how you talk about things, the language that you use, that you don't use your own emotional power to amplify things that are not doing you any good. Mm. And I think the single most important thinking um, lesson that I've had has been in the conversations and reflections with my, with my wife around my language and my thought patterns and and how to think positively and to let go of all the sort of self-destructive thought. And because that was an intellectual exercise, it was much easier for me to get, once I got it, I could start feeling the, I could feel that I was vibrating in a different way and that my internal resonance was different if I used different language. It was different if I used the language of gratitude very specifically, if I prayed intentionally, and if I became aware of when I started, you know, when the, the thought processes started. And my understanding, and I've done a lot of work around how our brain processes and how it works, that the synapses that you use most frequently are the ones in which the water flows through most naturally. So, you know, if you're thinking negative thoughts, then those are the sort of motorways that you're creating in your brain where the water just flows, sort of the, elect- the electric currents flow most naturally. And you can interrupt them. You can completely rewire your thinking through very specific use of language and an attention to your own thought patterns. So meditation, the, using the language of gratitude, and being aware of your language; those three things together, and wanting it. You know, if you if you're if you're happy in your little miserable cage, and if if um, if and and depression and sort of self pity and self loathing, they're they're very comfortable places to be because if you're a victim in some area of your life, then of course you don't really have any reason for moving. Because it's quite comfortable. I mean, a, a dungeon is quite a comfortable place to be. You don't actually have to do anything, you, know? you can just exist in there. And it, the climb up into the daylight is more complicated and painful. But once you're up there, then you realize that that is a, um, it's a choice for some. If it's chemical and you, know, you really do have a, 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 an issue with chemical imbalance. Well, then, I don't think, I'm not sure whether that helps or not. But for someone like me, where it was an entirely, I'm going to say, psychosomatic, or, you know, psychosomatic condition with all sorts of reasons for it, but they were. And I just didn't know that I could take responsibility for and actively counter the way that I was thinking. and That that would lead to significant change in my entire well-being by doing it so does that answer the question it's a very long-winded response. yeah
1: no it definitely does i appreciate you sharing those those three pieces the gratitude the meditation and the specific use of language is what it sounds like Were kind of the big three for you um i also noticed that you talked about how conversations with your spouse enabled you to become self-aware enough to then kind of begin this journey almost um I know that that's definitely been the case for me. Uh, we were talking before, I mean, my wife, you, you use the analogy of it. You know, your wife can read your own label of the jar that you're stuck in, right? And I think that's definitely the case, uh, whether it's a spouse, a close friend, a family member, whatever, having someone else you can have these types of conversations with saying, hey, I feel like I need to make a change. I'm not sure how I'm, I'm seeing that I'm doing X, Y and Z. How do you see it, or what are your thoughts, or what would you do? You know, just having that other person, a lot of times I feel like can help provide us with self awareness, provide us with perspective that can be very beneficial in that journey as you then begin to use this gratitude and the language and uh, the meditation and various things to kind of help you reform those pathways.
0: Well, one of my business heroes is Jack Stack, who is a remarkable man, runs a company called SRC um, Inc. in Springfield, Missouri, I think. Is it Missouri? Is it Illinois? one of the Springfields, Illinois, I think, south of Chicago. Okay. Um, and um, he his favorite phrase is, you got to want to, um, and you really do. You have to want to, um, which I think is the translation.
1: Yeah, I believe that. I mean, let's be real. No real change ever happens unless you actually want it. Um, yeah,
0: absolutely. And I think, you know, with the while we're sort of on the subject of spouses, I think that the interesting thing in a marriage is that both partners are on a journey. And I think marriages work at the very best when both are traveling in roughly the same direction and are not too far apart in the evolution and momentum on that journey. So it'll never be quite in parallel, and there'll always be somebody who's sort of half a kilometer ahead um, because they just happen to have a phase where they, you know, they're working on themselves or that something's happened and they move on quickly, and then you have to, they have to wait a while for you to catch up. And I think marriages start to to dissipate when one person just stops. So I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm far, I i do not want to develop anymore and the other person the other partner is still very much on the journey because then the distance becomes too too far to bridge and you end up actually being you're evolving into a different person mm-hmm. and there is no longer that there's no longer that oneness of purpose and of and of culture and I see that happening a lot you know I'm my 50s um and I really do. I see that happening a lot.
1: Yeah, and I think you'll often hear the phrase "We fell out of love," right? Or we just drifted apart. Well, I'd say That's an interesting one. Byproducts um, of that, to some extent. Yeah,
0: Stephen Covey has a has a very interesting story that he tells at the beginning of the Seven Habits, which I've never forgot. I re- I've read the Seven Habits. I'm guessing about twenty years ago, um, for the first time. I think I read it once again. But I've, there's one story of, that Stephen Covey tells of, the, of a man who came to him and says, I no longer love my wife. And Stephen Covey said to him, you're probably right. By which he said, well, what do you mean? You don't know me. He said, no, but if you're saying that, love is an active verb. Mm-hmm. It's not a descriptive verb. It's not a descriptive noun. It's, it's not a condition. It's an action. If you say you don't love her anymore, it's, it's on you. You have to actually participate. You have to do it. It's, a, it's, a, it's an active verb.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So if, you, if you're not doing it, it's like saying, I don't, I don't brush my teeth anymore or I don't run or I don't swim. If you say I don't love, then you probably don't. Yeah. But you need to. Yeah. And then you will be able to say that I love my wife because you're doing it.
1: Yeah, that actually just made me think of so many pieces of like advice that my wife and i have been given over the years things like make sure you make time for a date night make sure you have good quality conversation together make sure that you do x y and z there's always some sort of action that's being encouraged in order to maintain a good strong relationship to stay in love um, kind of this made me kind of think of your original point of the the purpose of the language the power of that language love you know the way you think about it is it's it's an action it's not necessarily just a descriptor word and so it, it is in those things that we both find it and maintain it
0: uh, yeah over and time. then it, and then you are it then it happens that yeah. doesn't mean that everybody it always works it doesn't um but i think that that lack of action possibly through apathy and distance in evolution, that you're not evolving at the same pace or in the same direction, or one's evolving and the other's just stopped, those two things together will probably account for a significant amount of
1: dissolution. Yeah. Well, Sir Stephen Wilkinson, I'm really... I always love our conversations. <laughs> did, but we I know about, that did we talk about any of the things you we, we did not <laughs> talk about effectively a single thing that was on the list, but it, I still think it's a great conversation. Um, we're almost about to run out of time, so I, I really would yeah. like to just ask you two more quick questions. One, a okay. th- little more thoughtful than one, that's just a real quick question we ask everyone at the at the very end of all of our shows. and If we need to, if you're up for it, maybe we'll, we'll bring you back on again for a second episode to really talk about some of this other great stuff that we could talk about um, together. But um, one thing as we've been talking about this idea of language and meditation, gratitude, this journey of understanding ourselves better has made me think of another part of a conversation we've had before. And that's your involvement and use of the Enneagram Um for listeners who may be anywhere, an enneagram is f- effectively a a personality typing system that helps us understand uh, ourselves a little better. Um, one that my wife and I have used, um, read a couple different books on, and it's it is very insightful for us personally. And I'd love to know: um, Has the enneagram been part of that journey for you in terms of coming to understand yourself better, having that deeper understanding and? Um, being more thoughtful. Um, did the Enneagram play a role in all of that for oh, you? Oh,
0: huge, huge role. How so? Well, it, I think everybody goes through an Enneagram journey. I, I love mental models. I, I, the more complex, the better, or the and certainly the more philosophically grounded, the better. I absolutely love the Enneagram because it it has an an ancient history going way back to the the Sufi desert fathers and 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 literally ancient wisdom going back four thousand years, where you know the the the, the shamans and the, the the great thinkers of the spiritual traditions have tried to understand this human condition and figured out you know, are there are there characteristics are there pools of characteristics and so that that knowledge has been sort of percolating away for 4,000 years. It only really came into Western civilization through the Jesuits who had in their studies in the sort of 14th, 15th century discovered this stuff and kept it a secret because they didn't want it to fall into the wrong hands and they thought it would be trivialized. and, And it's been used as part of sort of Jesuit um. Spiritual counseling or pastoral care for, I would say, a couple of hundred years. They've used it very sort of sparingly and secretly, and it was part of their learning tradition, but there was never, they never made a thing out of it. And in the 1970s, because there was a suddenly a crossover from, from Catholic academia to what I would call new age psychology. One or two of the sort of ex or people who've been taught by the Jesuits and were now investigating academic psychology started applying psychological insights into the Enneagram system. So it's uh, the Catholic Church and the Jesuits were sort of furious about this and didn't want this, but they couldn't stop it because it became, a, it, created, it became a life of its own. And you know much of what they feared would happen, that it would become trivialized and people would just see what's your number. And then that happened, as it always happens with these things. But the Enneagram has benefited enormously from the insights that these really very highly qualified psychologists um, and academics have brought to the system and the reason that i found the enneagram so fascinating was because it's a dynamic system all the other system the disc system the the strength finder system the Mm -hmm. myers-briggs system they're all static you take the test you are what you are the enneagram is the only one that recognizes that we're never just what we are on that day. And it's certainly not set in stone. And that we are on a journey of discovery where we are every day moves us in our understanding of the sort of strategies that we use to, to succeed in life and to survive. And I think everybody goes through the same journey. They, they discover what their number is Either they resonate with it immediately, and then they find out a bit more about it and hate it. <laughs> they think, "I wish I was any other number except this one." And I found I found myself being deeply depressed by the discovery of my number because I couldn't see any benefit to it whatsoever. I completely downplayed the positive sides of the number. I'm a seven, and I'm a pure mm. seven. Um, and I thought, you know, how could I ever hope to be successful in Finance with a sort of visionary, enthusiastic. It's exactly the traits that will end me up in prison or in destitute <laughs> in finance. And I can't see any. So I've you know wasted my time and my career. And I I really did get very sort of aggressively anti myself, and I wasn't prepared to give it very much room. But as I sort of it, as I engaged with the system and discovered what the learning journey was, then I found it immensely helpful to be both kind to myself, to understand what my own developmental journey might look like, and to be much more understanding of other people, much more understanding, much kinder to the world in general through my understanding of, of how personality is affected and created, you know, as a survival strategy, and we all come through the one of nine different doors.
1: Yeah, I I share many of the same sentiments. Uh, when I I'm a pure eight, and so when I first started learning about the eight, um, I had a similar experience. I'm like, man, I felt like all of a sudden all of these hidden. Or just unobserved things about myself that were not very—I—I—I um, I, I interpreted them as not good—became <laughs> um, <laughs> to light, and all of a sudden, I, I think it was probably just you know over years of ignoring it or just not seeing it. And, you know, I had this perception of who I was, and all of a sudden, it's now being shifted and changed and molded a little bit differently. Um, Because I'm coming to see myself more clearly. Um, And I think anytime in that journey, that's going to be painful. And for me, it it certainly has been. And I'll admit, I'm in the middle of it, still going through it. Uh, We talked about just before we started really recording about how I took a test recently you had connected me with. And um, some of the insights are just incredibly powerful for both, in my opinion, you can't really make any progress until you clearly see where you're at but sometimes seeing where we are at is painful because we see our imperfections. We see what is not there. We see, we suddenly become aware of the distance. One of the Um, great
0: Enneagram teachers alive at the moment is a Jesuit priest called father Richard raw, who -hmm. has written some beautiful work books around the subject of, of the true self and of our character. And he has this amazing, quotation which says the truth will set you free but first it will make you miserable Mm. and there there is that's the enneagram it will lead you to a truth about yourself and your journey but boy will it make you miserable to start with (laughs) Um, you just got to be prepared for that
1: Oh, and I know that for for those of us in the audience who are of a faith background, uh, I'm thinking specifically a a version of a Christian faith background, I mean, any of that, the purpose of life is to grow and become better and to become like Christ, right? And in my mind's eye, he is the embodiment of all of those things. So inevitably, there is going to be pain in that movement and seeing the distance and seeing Becoming get that clarity that comes over time as you strive to reach that ideal, um, I just really appreciate the enneagram as a as a like you said a mental model with which to view that journey and to provide well, you context. Well, the,
0: the, the enneagram is also a you know, that transition, which has a and it's not just the Christian faith that that talks about death and and reincarnation, but we are in a constant process in our lives of 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 the of the false self dying and resurrecting in ourselves freed from the constraints of the false self yeah and and that's what our journey is about it's about that death and resurrection within us and the only and you can't do that by yourself you have to be able to let go of the false self that was fine when you were an infant and growing up and and that gave you the sort of structure to survive in that environment in which you were helpless to finding your maturity yeah and and in order to find the maturity and the peace on the other side of it, you need to go through that death, yeah and there's, 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 there's no. Every, every successful life has that trajectory. Everyone.
1: Yeah, totally. I and, completely agree. And you know, the, the, the sooner you can get it over, the better. <laughs> well, I would argue the longer you put it off, the more painful it likely will be. Yeah. And uh, Richard
0: Raw says something else. He says, you know, the moment, the, the the usually that moment of death and rebirth is a period that comes in the middle of life as the old strategy that took you to a certain level of success through your youthful, dynamic, striving energy suddenly starts not working as well and then becomes counterproductive. Mm -hmm. So what worked in your 20s and early 30s, in your late 30s and 40s, suddenly starts working against you. Mm -hmm. And if you don't reject that and leave it in order to mature into your, your new self, then, you know, you, you will be miserable. And that's why there are so many suicides amongst men between the age of 45 and 55. And it's the highest incident, um, area because they can't make that break. And Richard Raw says, there are three things that can postpone the day of reckoning great talent, great wealth, and great fame. So, mm-hmm. if you have any one of those three things, they can create an environment in which the necessity for change is postponed. But he says, believe me, it's more painful if you have to do it at 65 or 70 than if you can get it over with in your 40s. Uh, for me, it was in my 50s, but you know, it, uh, um, and I fought it. I fought it as long as I could. I fought it for ten years before I gave up and realized I, I wasn't. It wasn't a fight I could win.
1: Mm. I mean that—that's a story in and of itself. I'd love to to hear. Unfortunately, we're out we of time. Of, we're out of time. <laughs> uh, I will make a note of that. Maybe next time we'll we'll just pick up where we left Look off. That. Thank um, you so much for having me on your Contenders
0: Wanted show. It's been a great conversation. I've enjoyed all of our conversations, and uh, I hope. Um, that your listeners will find some some um, consistency or structure in our wide-ranging conversation.
1: Oh, I'm sure they will. Well, well, Stephen, we end every show with one question, and I'd love to hear your response. Um, and then after that, I'll leave a, a second for you to be able to uh, tell listeners how they can learn more about you, learn more about your company, Good and Prosper, and and what else you've got going on. Um, And so, the one last question we ask everyone is, what does it mean to you, Sir Stephen Wilkinson, to be a contender?
0: Good question. Um, I think it means... It means what Roosevelt, Franklin... Not Franklin, um, the other one, Teddy. Teddy, When he was talking about the man in the arena. Mm -hmm. That's what it means. It means being understanding who you are and being able to take that identity into the arena of life and engage with whatever comes in the knowledge and secure knowledge of your identity and being fine with that. Um, You know, being the captain of your soul and the master of your fate, um, that's That's what it means to be a contender.
1: I wholeheartedly agree. Instead of a cold and timid soul. Right. The one. (laughs) Love it. Great. Well,
0: Well, but why don't you put, I hope you can put this in the show notes, but anybody, anybody can reach me at, uh, on LinkedIn. That's where I tend to, to be when I'm in the sort of world of connectivity, mm -hmm. um, at Stephen cairn Wilkinson um, on LinkedIn, Or good and prosper. There's also a good and prosper link there, or at goodandprosper.com. And I am most interested in engaging with people who read my newsletter, um, which the link to which you can find on goodandprosper.com as well.
1: Yeah, and well, then I also know that you have some courses that you put out recently around personal finance and various things. There's all sorts of stuff. I'll leave links to all of those things in the show notes. Thank you. Sir Stephen Wilkinson, thank you so much for your time today. Very much appreciated this.
0: Thank you, Rob, and uh, God bless. Likewise.
1: All right, contenders, that's a wrap on episode 38. Thank you so much for joining us today. I know this episode was a little bit longer than the normal ones, but thank you for tuning in and staying with us until now. Um, Like I said in the beginning, Sir Stephen Wilkinson shared that his, what he feels like the most important thing that he could share is this idea around learning to recognize and understand and be mindful of and ultimately control our thoughts and point them in the direction that we want them to go. So how could I not make that the point of the show? And for me personally, it's been my own experience of trying to recognize and understand and become more the master of my thoughts instead of being at their whim. Um, That's proven to be one of my biggest and best personal and professional development tools. It's not always an easy process and sometimes it's painful to have someone point out something that you wish could just stay hidden. But at the end of the day, it's been probably one of the best things for me. So I'd encourage you to do the same thing. And that's my key takeaway from the show today. I got to keep working on that. I got to keep getting better. What about you? What was your key takeaway from the show today? Hey guys, before we go into the closing commercials and kind of closing credits of the show, I just wanted to give you all a heads up. Uh, We're kind of wrapping up season two of Contenders Wanted here. We have three episodes left in the dock. They're really great. I'm excited for them to come out, but I just kind of wanted to give you a heads up that there are some big things happening here at Contenders Wanted, and specifically, Mrs. Contenders Wanted and I will be moving. We're adding another member to our family in between seasons, and it's just I'm there's a bunch of things happening. I'll give you more details at the start of season three. But with that being said, please be patient with me as there are a lot of moving parts in our lives in the next few weeks and next couple of months as we wrap up the season. So if the next episode or two are a little bit delayed from their normal schedule, just know that that's because that's what's going on. I'm going to do my very best to not let it be that way. But just in case it is just know that that's the case. And always, thank you so much for listening. Especially if you're a long-time listener to the show, thank you so much for staying with us. I hope that these episodes are valuable for you. And if you do find them valuable, please share them with a friend. And leave us a review on Apple iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast players. I, I know I say that at the end of every single episode, but I would really, really appreciate it. That's how others find the show, and that's how we get more exposure, and that's how we grow. So, thank you. I really mean it. Imagine if you knew exactly what you should do to move faster towards financial freedom. As if you could have a conversation with someone who knew you and knew all about creating wealth. And they could show you exactly what the next step should be for you. Which business to start, or maybe an investment to pursue, or a general route that's just best for you and your family. Well, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. I'm Rob Cook. I'm a CFP and a CPA, and I've dedicated the last 10 years of my life to understanding wealth creation and personal finances. And the best part is I'm giving it away for free to listeners of the show. I'm calling it the Financial Freedom Blueprint. It starts with a simple quiz and ends with a call to discuss the results. As a bonus, I'll give you a couple cheat sheets personalized to your route with some tools and resources that I've personally vetted. All you need to do is visit contenderswanted.com slash freedom and enter your email address to get started. Once again, that's contenderswanted.com slash freedom and enter your email address to get started. Financial freedom doesn't have to be so far away. Let's get you in the fast lane with the Financial Freedom Blueprint as always a list of the resources and links we discussed as well as a recap of the show and more about our guests can be found in the show notes please feel free to shoot me an email at rob at contenderswanted.com if you'd like to suggest a guest for the show or just to contact me i'm always open to any feedback you might have and would love to hear how the show is helping you so once again my email is rob at ContendersWanted.com. thank you for listening and remember success leaves clues and contenders are always wanted